0: I'd like to welcome you all. Uh, We're back in the book of Acts. Uh, We left off a couple of weeks ago for um, a little time of refreshing and vacationing away, but it's good to be here today. We're going to pick up where we left off at the beginning of Acts chapter 13, where we learn some more about the interaction of the Holy Spirit and the early church and let me begin by reading the first 12 verses. Now in the church at Antioch there were prophets and teachers Barnabas, Simeon called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manon who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch and Saul while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting The Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So after they had fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. The two of them sent on their way by the Holy Spirit went down to Seleucia and sailed from there to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the Jewish synagogues. John was with them as their helper. They traveled through the whole island until they came to Pathos. There they met a Jewish sorcerer and false prophet named Bar-Jesus, who was an attendant of the proconsul Sergius Paulus. The proconsul, an intelligent man, sent for Barnabas and Saul because he wanted to hear the word of God. But Elemas, the sorcerer, for that is what his name means, opposed them and tried to turn the proconsul from the faith. Then Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked straight at Elimus and said, You are a child of the devil and an enemy of everything that is right. You are full of all kinds of deceit and trickery. Will you never stop perverting the right ways of the Lord? Now the hand of the Lord is against you. You are going to be blind for a time, not even able to see the light of the sun. Immediately mist and darkness came over him, and he groped about seeking someone to lead him by the hand. When the proconsul saw what had happened, he believed, for he was amazed at the teaching about the Lord. Now, just by way of quick review, again, some things that we need to remember. Paul and Barnabas' launching place is not Jerusalem. It is Antioch. Antioch is a city and uh, Antioch is known particularly for being the place where the followers of the way were first called Christians. Number one. Number two. Paul and Barnabas didn't just do their own thing. The Holy Spirit is setting them aside and the sign to the church as a body that they're set aside for a particular work is made manifest by the laying on of hands. A person's ordination or setting apart is done in a way that it's clear to the church that this is a work that they have been given, that they have been set aside for, they are accountable to that church. They're not accountable to the Apostles in Jerusalem. They're accountable to the brothers and sisters and the leadership of the church at Antioch. Even though Paul is an Apostle, nevertheless he respects the structure of the early church. They go about from place to place, and as they go about, part of the thing that's interesting is they're going into synagogues. They're going into Jewish places. Why is that interesting? Because they are no longer just Jewish people. They are Jewish men who have become convinced that Jesus is the Christ. And now what they're doing is they're going about from place to place proclaiming that Jesus is the Christ. And while they are in Pathos, they come across an individual who is identified both as a sorcerer and a false prophet. And this individual um, opposes them. And he try, I guess he continues to interrupt as uh, Paul is preaching. And at some point, Paul reaches his setup point point and lets it be known that he's not going to continue to put up with this and essentially proclaims a curse against him. And with that cursing, God demonstrates that his hand is indeed against Bar-Jesus, this false prophet, And Paul says this, You are going to be blind for a time, not even able to see the light of the sun. Immediately mist and darkness came upon him. When the proconsul saw what had happened, he believed or he was amazed at the teaching about the Lord. Well, then we continue. Let me read this next section, and I'll comment on it. From Paphos, Paul and his companions sailed to Perga in Pamphylia, where John left them to return to Jerusalem. From Perga they went on to Pisidian Antioch. On the Sabbath they entered the synagogue and sat down. After the reading from the law of the prophets, and the, prophets the leaders of the synagogue sent word to them, saying, Brothers, if you have a word of encouragement, For the people, please speak. I always find this fascinating because, again, I assume that they don't know who they really are, nor do they understand what they're going to say. I doubt that they would have invited Paul and Barnabas to speak had they known that. Standing up, Paul motioned with his hand and said, and then what occurs next is a much shortened version of what we knew similarly earlier in the book when Stephen is given an opportunity to speak and he recounts the uh, goings on between God and the descendants of Abraham and how God uh, protected them, delivered them from the Pharaoh in Egypt, took them through the wilderness took them into the promised land and so forth. And here Paul is essentially doing the same thing. And I won't read over all of this, but just to say, and I'll pick up the narrative down around verse 18. um, While in the wilderness he endured their conduct for 40 years, uh, and then he overthrew seven nations in Canaan, giving their land to his people, as their inheritance. All of this took place for about 450 years. After this, God gave them judges until the time of Samuel the prophet. Then the people asked for a king, and he gave them Saul, son of Kish. You may remember what took place. The judges were raised up one by one to essentially rule and to make pronouncements and make decisions in much the same way that Moses had. But at some point, the people decide, we want to be like the other nations. We want to be like the other countries. Give us a king. To which God told um, Samuel, go back and tell the people that I'm their king. No, 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 that wasn't enough. They want their own king. They want to be just like everybody else. So God says, pick a king. And what do they do? They pick the tall one. They pick the one that was, you know, over everybody's head. Perhaps the most handsome as well, although we're not told that. But we are told that he's tall. So he's the tall one. But look how that went. You know, it was another example where men judge according to appearance and God judges righteous judgment. They wanted the guy that they thought this would be a good king. And so they pick Saul, king of Cush, or son of Cush, Kish, of the tribe of Benjamin, who ruled for forty years. And then he's removed. After removing Saul, God made David their king. God testifying about him, I have found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. He will do everything that I want him to. Now. We know that David didn't do everything that God wanted him to. He numbered the army of Israel, and for that he was punished, and the people of God were punished. He sinned with Bathsheba. But other than those things, there's very little pronounced against David throughout um, the books of the Old Testament. From this man's descendants, God has brought to Israel the Savior Jesus. Again, this would be the one who would forever sit on David's throne. David's throne, the earthly throne of David, was symbolic of the throne of God in heaven. And it says, from this man's descendants, God has brought to Israel the Savior Jesus as he promised. Before the coming of Jesus, John, that is, John the Baptist, preached repentance and baptism to all the people of Israel. Excuse me. As John was completing his work, he said, Who do you suppose that I am? I am not the one that you're looking for. John was very careful to not point to himself. John... Understood something that a lot of people ought to learn from. John knew his place. John knew his place. I work for Lamb Foundation, in addition to being pastor at Shepherd's Chapel. At Lamb Foundation, Donna, uh, our director, and I have been associated for a long time. I know my place. I'm not the director. I'm not the owner. I don't speak for the organization unless she wants me to speak for the organization, which is rare, but I know my place. If we're out somewhere, I always defer to her. And John is the same way. He knows his place. He is not Jesus. People were making a big deal. And the reason they were making a big deal, and this is something that's often missed. When we read the Bible, we have a book that is made up of two distinct sections. We have the Old Testament... We have the New Testament. The Old Testament ends with the prophet Malachi. The New Testament begins with the book of Matthew. But in between testaments is a span of 400 plus years. And so God is essentially, we might say it this way, silent to his people for four centuries. He speaks through Malachi, and then he stops. And when he starts speaking again, he starts speaking through what we might say the very last Old Testament or Old Covenant prophet, and that would be John the Baptist. Old in the sense that he is the final prophet, before the Messiah is revealed but he knows his place and when Jesus comes to be baptized of him John's baptism is a baptism of repentance and why would Jesus need to be baptized with a baptism symbolizing repentance It is because he is standing in the place of the people of God, the true Israel. He doesn't need to repent of any sins. But he's acting in behalf of God's people who are in need of being careful in repenting. And as a result, he symbolizes them by being baptized by John but John clearly understands that Jesus and Jesus' familiarity with the people, popularity with the people, what Jesus was about to unveil in terms of his public ministry over the course of the next three years, both in his teaching and preaching and miracle working, John says it this way, he must increase and I must decrease. I'm here for a short period of time, I don't know exactly what my mission is. God will tell me, just as God has told me what my mission would be in baptizing these folks, making them ready and presentable to God himself. But this one that I'm baptizing, this one upon whom the Spirit of God descends like a dove, this one that a voice from heaven proclaims, this is my beloved son. Hear him, this one must increase, and I must decrease. So he knows his place. As John was completing his work, he said, Who do you suppose that I am? I am not the one you were looking for, but there is one coming after me whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. Think about that just in terms of humility. He's not even worthy to untie the master's sandals. Fellow children of Abraham and you God-fearing Gentiles, it is to us that this message of salvation has been sent. Now, it's interesting Paul's choice of words here because he does not say, all of you who are descendants of Abraham, He says instead, fellow children of Abraham and you God-fearing Gentiles. I think when he's speaking about you children of Abraham, a child of Abraham who would be what? One who has Abraham's faith, not simply one who's been circumcised like the many offspring of Abraham. What about God-fearing Gentiles as opposed to non-God-fearing Gentiles. There are plenty of those, aren't there? And we live in a day and age in which the same thing is true. Because in another place, Paul says it this way, not all Israel is Israel. And I think as a result of that, many in contemporary Christianity today get it clearly wrong when they want to talk about Israel and what they mean is the nation of Israel. Instead of Israel as a spiritual nation of spiritual descendants of Abraham who have Abraham's faith, whether they are of Jewish lineage and physical descent from Jews, or whether they are gentiles a gentile being a non-Jew but when Paul says not all not all of Israel or not all of Israel is Israel what he means is that there are we might say it this way there is physical Israel and within physical Israel there is spiritual Israel but spiritual Israel is also comprised not only of those from a Jewish background But who are Gentiles by birth, who nevertheless have Abraham's faith, or who will be demonstrated to have those with Abraham's faith. The people of Jerusalem and their rulers did not recognize Jesus, yet in condemning him, they fulfilled the words of the prophet that are read every Sabbath. Though they found no proper ground for a death sentence, they asked Pilate to have him executed. When they had carried out all that was written about him, they took him down from the cross and they laid him in the tomb. But God raised him from the dead, and for many days he was seen by those who had traveled with him from from Galilee to Jerusalem. They are now his witnesses to our people. Who is a witness? It's those who have been with Jesus. They have seen him. They have witnessed him from the time of his baptism to the time of his resurrection. You may recall in the earlier parts of the book of Acts that when Judas had to be replaced, who were the candidates for replacement? Those who had been among the believers from the beginning, those who had been witnesses of Jesus from the time of his baptism to the time of his resurrection and saw and were witnesses to his resurrection. We tell you the good news. What God promised our ancestors, he has fulfilled for us their children by raising up Jesus as it is written in the second psalm you are my son, today I have become your father. God raised him from the dead so that he will never be subject to decay, as God has said. I will, sh- I will give the holy and sure blessings promised to David. So it is also stated elsewhere, you will not let your holy one see decay. Now when David had served God's purpose in his own generation, He fell asleep, that is, he died. He was buried with his ancestors and his body decayed. But the one whom God raised from the dead did not see decay. This is a mouthful. Imagine you've gone to synagogue that day. You've brought your family. You're hearing the law and the prophets read yet again. You are listening to the rabbi as the rabbi is bringing a lesson. You are seeing those that you have worshipped with for years, perhaps even decades. And now all of a sudden, somebody comes on the scene, a guest, no less, and expands on the scriptures in a way that you've never heard expanded upon before. It would be similar to when Jesus, at the very beginning of his public ministry, went into the synagogue in Luke chapter 4. And the portion of scripture that's read, he reads from what we call Isaiah 61. And then he hands the scroll back and he says, today these things have been fulfilled in your hearing. The same kind of moment. The apostle Paul here with Barnabas is sharing with those individuals who have come to worship God a word from God that they could never have thought and were amazed. As a matter of fact, he later on says in the chapter, quoting from Habakkuk chapter 1, Look, you scoffers, wonder and perish, for I am going to do something in the days. And you you would never believe even if someone told you. Here's the reality. As they went around preaching from town to town and synagogue after synagogue, some believed and many just didn't believe. And yet, that seems to be the normal experience. While there are moments of great evangelistic fervor, great growth for the church throughout the centuries throughout the millennia since Christ, the reality is oftentimes the truth of God is just rejected out of hand. Because we're told in another place that the God of this world has blinded the eyes and deafened the ears of the hearers and only those that the Holy Spirit gives life to will be able to see and we'll be able to hear, and we'll be able to repent and believe. I hope if you're listening to this, either on Spotify or watching it on YouTube, or sitting here today, that you're among those who believe with all your heart that Jesus is the Christ, and that you believe it with such conviction that you're willing to tell others about it, and that you can say with the Apostle Paul, that you're not ashamed of the gospel, for you recognize it as the very power of God with which he chooses to save sinners and prepare us for eternity. Thanks for the time together that we've spent today. Let's pray. Father, again, we pause to give you many thanks for the opportunity that we have each time to hear the gospel proclaimed. Lord, we can't imagine what it must have been to be there when the Apostle Paul spoke the words that we read about tonight. What it must have been like the day that Jesus sat and read from the scroll and said, this day these words have been fulfilled in your hearing. But Lord, there was a time in our lives in which we would have been able to say the same thing, that today is the day that your words are fulfilled in our lives by giving us faith to believe and hearts with which we're able to repent of our sins. And we thank you for those moments. In Jesus' name, amen.